Hi. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, thanks. I like your background. Thank you. I'm originally from California. I'm imagining warmer days as I'm stuck in Nebraska right now. Oh, I'm assuming that is not warm at all. (laughs) It is not. Um, It's currently in the 30s, which is considered a heat wave for this time of year. So. Oh, wow. (laughs) Thank you again for being so flexible uh, with me having to cancel last minute last week. I had a personal emergency come up and had to go help out. Yeah, it happens. It'll totally fine. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Do you have any questions before we get started? Uh, no, feel free to, you know. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, welcome to Chatting with Creators. I'm so excited to have you on the show to talk about your personal journey and your work on the new Netflix um, original In From The Cold. Would you please introduce yourself and the project to your audience? Sure. Uh, my name is Tori Letzler. I'm a composer for, you know, film, television, anything media related. Um, I also go by an alias called Tiny Cat for an electronic project. And I wrote the score for In From The Cold on Netflix. Well, awesome. How would you describe In From The Cold for anyone that hasn't seen it yet? I mean, not to give too much away, it's definitely a genre build as a spy fi So it is very much a spy thriller series with uh, science uh, fiction or sci-fi elements to it. Um, It's very, uh, you know, uh, female centered with these very strong female characters. And if you're into, you know, uh, 90s uh, culture and present day badass, you know, kick ass fight scenes, uh, it's definitely something you'll be into. So... How did you first get involved um, as a vocalist in the film and video game scene? And how did that spawn into you eventually making your way as a composer? Um, Well, I've been singing my entire life. I've been singing professionally since about the age of nine. Um, I worked at the Metropolitan Opera uh, in New York City in the Children's Choir. And then after that, I ended up touring with Cirque du Soleil as a teenager um, as a vocalist for them. And then I kind of just wanted to take a more backseat approach to vocals and writing music. And that's how I got involved in wanting to be a film composer. I ended up going to Berklee College of Music in Boston and studied there for a few years. Um, And then when I got a job out in LA, interning at Hans Zimmer Studio Remote Control, there's a ton of composers under that roof, um, not just Hans. And one thing led to another and I got put on a documentary and the word got out that I could Sing. <laughs> and I just started getting thrown onto a lot of projects for people that worked under that roof. So it kind of snowballed very quickly. I feel like it's one of those things where it's like, once you get into it, you're just really into it. There's not really a halfway about it. Yeah, <laughs> very quickly. So with this film in particular, uh, this isn't exactly a spoiler, it is like something that's in the series. Um, you got to uh, write in Russian. Uh, what was your journey like exploring Russian folk songs and eventually bringing, you know, that theme to being one of the forefronts for the In From The Cold score? 
so I didn't get to write in Russian as a language, but we were really inspired by this old Russian folk song that Adam Glass, our creator, had found. And it's like, it's so old that there was like two recordings of it that even exist. I don't know where he found this, but it was uh, super inspirational and a really good like uh, benchmark for where we wanted to start. And we talked really early on that we didn't want the score for the show to sound Russian. Like we didn't want it to be on the nose, but with that one theme, we did want it to allude to an Eastern European scale. And so we took influence from the scale used in that lullaby or, or that folk song to create our lullaby. Um, and so it is kind of the one piece that really acts as our, you know, Russian tie through everything. Um, and it acts as a vehicle for like our main villain. It's sung on screen and off, and it comes really in and out of the score quite frequently through the eight episodes. So for anyone who hasn't, you know, stalked your website like I have um, or just, you know, been well, this the main audience for this show is, you know, music students, not everyone that listens and is from conservatory culture. But for anyone that doesn't know um, in music school, especially for vocalists, um, even though you were there to study uh, film, you have studied. So I was hmm. there for studying voice and for comedy. Oh, nice. They don't let us do that here. They're like, pick one. Um, <laughs> uh, studying multiple languages, especially, you know, diction and then cultural implications is a huge part of, you know, studying to be a classical musician. Do you feel like that classical training um, came to the forefront with this or was it something that was more on the side burner? Oh, with this, not at all. Um, I, I mean, I, so I studied, uh, you know, classical voice up until the age of about 18, 18, 19. I was on track to be an opera singer for like a really long time um, and kind of abandoned that front. I even went to Italy to study, um, you know, Italian and, and uh, opera out there. So that was very much my track. But with this score, um, the only place that my classical chops really came into play at all is um, the... Uh, Tchaikovsky's Nocturne Number no. 9, I believe is the piece, um, is used a little bit in this score. Um, and it's played on screen. Um, you see it in used in an ice skating championship. And then it's also incorporated into uh, pivotal moments of the score. I've done like a couple of interesting arrangements of it. And that was cool to be able to break down such a iconic piece of classical uh, Russian music. Um, but outside of that, everything about the score is non, non-standard, uh, non <laughs> Absolutely. So it's just more fun to like color outside the lines. As a composer myself, I completely agree. <laughs> I am in an analysis for performance class right now, because that's something all senior music majors are required to take. And it's always interesting to, you know, do the academic readings where they're like, the composers always have these things in mind. I'm like, definitely do not. <laughs> like 90% of the time. Yeah, uh, in school, uh, I think a lot of my teachers didn't like me because I never wanted to play by the, the rules that I was supposed to play, especially in like, you know, my classical composition where there are strict rules that you're supposed to follow. And I was just like, no, rules are meant to be broken. Like, this is not, <laughs> this is not where I want to be. I want to, you know, I want to try weird stuff and not play by the rules. And then when something sounds broken, that's when it sounds cool. So. Exactly. Especially, you know, with something that has such thriller elements like this, I mean, 
thriller, one of the things that makes it thrilling is how it's just so unexpected, especially in the sound. Yeah, I mean, Adam and I talked really early on that we wanted the sound to be very modern and synthetic based, not a ton of organic instruments, orchestra, um, and we wanted it to be able to function for both of the timelines in the show. So we have 90s industrial Russia and then present day. And so we wanted to allude to our love of the 90s, but also make it feel modern and cool and be able to work for, you know, when she's kicking ass, you know, in today and not sound like, oh, we're watching something that's like dated. Um, the only thing that exists only in our past timeline is uh, the love theme between um, Anya and Faina, which is like a very like synth wave, bubbly, cool girl, like uh, track. And that only exists between those two characters in the nineties. Um, and that was very purposeful, but everything else kind of travels back and forth because, you know, we are seeing this storyline through present day Jenny, Anya's brain. It's not like it's something that's happening at the same time. So I wanted it to, to feel uh, cohesive. So this is a little bit of a less serious question, but I feel is important nonetheless. Who is your favorite 90s artist? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, Nine Inch Nails, for sure. <laughs> um, and then Great I answer. hear that Nevermind came out from Nirvana. So while Nirvana is not my favorite band, I just think it's cool that I was born the same year as that the album came out. And I'm like the same age as the Nevermind baby. That's just a fun thing for me. <laughs> I did not exist in the 90s. Oh, all. no. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm exactly 21. So I'm 21. So I was just barely not in the 90s. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm making myself here. Jeez. <laughs> not that much older than me I just like when people are like ah uh, yes I the 90s I'm like I saw friends yeah oh man <laughs> well uh if you don't listen to any any music from the late 80s early 90s you should because it's such a great period of time for music it really is I this might sound a little bit dated and I apologize my 13 year old cousin recently had a 90s themed dance at her middle school <laughs> and she was in charge of making the playlist so I sent her some suggestions that's super cute <laughs> well simultaneously explaining to her I'm not a millennial because the way she phrased the question was you're a millennial right can you recommend some 90s music to me <laughs> I was like, I'm not a millennial, but I can help. This for you. <laughs> Something that really stuck out to me when I was reached out to by White Bear PR about this interview um, and their description of the score was how you tried to bring a feminine edge to the music. What does that mean to you philosophically and musically? And as I said, like this for this podcast is specifically for, you know, music students and musicians. So you can dive as nitty gritty into it as you want. Well, I mean, for me, um, I like to tell people that I don't necessarily like to only tell female stories, but I am drawn to if the story is just a very strong, real grounded female character, you know, not strong in the sense of trying to pander to anybody. It's just a real life look at what a woman in her forties 
would be going through and feeling in if she was put in a situation like this. And I really related to that. Um, and I, I loved the mother daughter relationship in the show as well. It's like a big cornerstone. Um, just relationships and strong female characters are such a big part of the show, but it's a very gritty show. And so, you know, we didn't want it to be this pretty school, like just because we have female characters and this is not a pretty score. This is supposed to, you know, these women are kicking ass um, and not in like a, a traditional way of when you see women in fight scenes, they're cool and sexy. No, this is like gruesome, which I loved right off the bat. So um, we talked early on, like, how do we get that grittiness, but also play up to the fact that she is fighting with her former self and fighting with these emotions and, you know, fighting with the fact that she is this woman, but also this like killing machine essentially. Um, so that's where we decided that, you know, since matched with vocals would be a really good way to capture that. The vocal being the human element and having that soft edge, although oftentimes very highly processed through the score. Um, I used a plugin called Portal from a company called Output a ton on uh, the vocals and the score, which is uh, like a granular plugin. Um, so oftentimes stuff is shifting with delays or has stutters, all kinds of weird stuff. Um, and then the score is heavily um, analog synths. A lot of Eurorack was used, um, but also in the box stuff, um, heavily relied on Serum, the software synth, um, Diva, some Yuhi stuff like Zebra. And then the only places you really get organic instruments are in very, very heightened emotional moments. So we have some process strings in those places. And then piano was a big instrument used in the score. But I'd say we hardly have any organic percussion, barely any strings. It's really just piano and vocals. And then synths is like what makes up the bulk of the music. I think that simplicity also is one of the things that really like dives into the grittiness and like realness of it, in my opinion. Cool. Yeah. I mean, sometimes less can be more. More is also more. But, you know, mm -hmm. and of not overscoring situations, I think if you can make three sounds sound really fucking cool and have a really strong melody or a strong sonic world built into your show, it's, you know, it can say a lot than just throwing everything in the kitchen sink into a piece of music. Expanding a bit on the vocals for this score, there are a ton of vocal tracks. Did you record them all yourself? I did. Yeah. Everything was recorded by me, <laughs> produced by me, done by me. Um, I think we counted there's like 88 vocal cues in the score. And the, the show, it's an eight hour or an eight episode show. And they're about 45 to 50 minute long episodes and pretty much wall to wall music between score and source music. Um, and I think I wrote somewhere in the neighborhood, like six to seven hours of music, but yeah, there's a lot of vocals. Um, but it was fun. I mean, right before I did this score, I was doing a sample pack for the company splice, which anybody can go online and download. It's a vocal pack. Um, and through that process of having to record like 400 different vocal samples of myself and produce them. I helped figure out some techniques that I ended up using on the score. It was kind of like a testing ground for it. That's really cool. What is your 
personal process for recording the vocals and then producing them to make the effects you want in the score? Are you like singing to picture? Do you have an idea of what you want to sing beforehand? Like, how do you personally go about using your vocal instrument in this way? You know, it's always different. And I, I really look at the voice, specifically my voice, as the same as I would any sort of, you know, VST or like, it's just another tool. Um, sometimes I will think of melodies and sing them into the mic and then build a cue around them. Um, sometimes it's just to be an accent. I mean, I was working, there's this uh, one cue, uh, it's the end of episode two. And I think it's the episode that's titled The Bride. And um, there's this like couple note piano theme that runs throughout the show. We've done it a few times on piano and it was like this pivotal moment. And I was like, I had built the whole cue and I had the piano going on and seeing like, you know what? It's just not, it's not doing the emotion the way I want. And I was like, screw it, hold the mic over. I'm gonna sing the, I'm gonna sing the theme right up to picture right over the thing. And then that was it. It's just whatever kind of suits the moment. I have my mic set up at all times. It sits right next to me. Um, I use a manly uh, condenser mic. And then I have this retro uh, power strip, which has a compressor and EQ in it. Um, it is always set up, ready to go in my template. So I can, at any given moment, record vocals. Um, I just, if, I, if it wasn't set up, I'd be like lost without it. <laughs> that is really cool. I should probably just always have, you know, my piano and a recording track for when I play on my clarinet ready to go. But yeah, I make it harder for myself and I have to go in and make the track again before I go and record. Yeah, I mean, I have it down to like the reverbs already on the track. I mean, the stuff I do to it after the fact changes, but everything is routed, ready to go, pull the mic in, sing, like, so it takes me, you know, two seconds and I don't lose that idea as opposed to, you know, 15, 20 minutes of setting up everything. That is really cool and very, smart of you, like knowing how you want that you'll need it in the moment. Oh yeah. I mean, I think something with free, like time is always so bad. Like it's just crucial. I mean, I had a lot more time with the score than you usually would with TV because Netflix puts everything out at once as opposed to an episode each week. Um, but like, if you are, you know, on a deadline, you don't want to have a vocal that last two bars take you 45 minutes to get it set up and recorded what needs to be a quick thing that you have access to so one thing that I found really interesting when I was watching the screener was it felt more like an eight-hour movie with some intermissions rather than you know eight episodes in a serial so out of my own curiosity when you were scoring it did you think of it as like one like eight hour thing or did you think of each episode separately no it, it I, I tell people this it, it was very much like scoring long film um and the way that the team worked functioned more similarly to how it would be on a film which was amazing um and I got brought on super early which is really rare for music we're usually brought on as like one of the last pieces of the puzzle which is fine but sometimes it can do a disservice when you're asked to turn around an entire score in two weeks um this was about uh, seven or eight months of actually working on the score. 
as early as they were on set and I was writing stuff to the script and to uh, early dailies edits that were coming in. And then they were playing stuff on set and letting the actors listen to the score. I mean, uh, I got to meet a few of the actors uh, at the premiere and they said that uh, Adam creator had given them bits of the score and they would go running to it in the morning to get into character. I mean, that's how like all enveloped we were as a team. Everybody was working together. I was working super closely with Michelle Johnson, our amazing music supervisor, so that everything felt like seamless. Like it wasn't source, score, source, score. It was like, all right, how are we world building here? How are we serving the story? And Adam was super big on having themes, which sometimes in television, if you're week to week, week to week, you don't have time to really invest in those themes and those characters. This, it was really like, it was a film that we, you know, sliced into eight chunks and the music functions that way. Um, and I just think it, it really served the story. I agree. I love how much more often, though it's still kind of uncommon to hear about bringing in the composer early, especially for the purpose of having the score be something that's accessible while on set or previous yeah. to being on set. I feel like it's gotten a lot more common since Joker because that was a score that they like finished writing before it was even yeah, started we, filming. Um, the lullaby theme was written before they were even, or it was just as they were getting on set, the original version of it. Um, and it, the Joker was a reference, not musically, but it just the idea of having actors be able to hear this thing to, you know, get into character. And so I think it's cool. I wish people would do that more often. Um, it actually served us really well because often, you know, you're getting stuff with temp score in it. And with this project, we used very little temp score. Um, I made it like five or six theme suites at the top of the project, which was these like anywhere from, you know, a minute to four minute long pieces that had a lot of thematic material in it that were geared towards certain characters or certain moments in the script. And the editors were given those pieces of music and allowed to cut with them. So, you know, instead of getting what we like to call temp love where somebody on the creative side could fall in love with a piece of temporary music and then you're constantly trying to beat it, Often if they fell in love with a piece of music, it was something that was already being crafted for the score. Um, and again, like, I think that's why this show has a really distinct sonic feeling is because we weren't trying to recreate anybody else's sound. Yeah, it's just, I also think it's just so much more immersive in the world building of it. It might just because, you know, of my musical training, but every once in a while I'll be watching a film. I'm like, this sounds very John Williams. Oh yeah, you can tell. You've, you know, have any sort of recognition of film music. When somebody is in temp love, it's usually a pretty recognizable piece of film. I mean, I'll be watching a movie and I'm like, oh, they 100% tempt this with blah, 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 blah. So that, I, I mean, it's not, it's never the composer's fault. Like it's just, and it's not, it's not anyone's fault. They're just used to hearing this music and serving their story. And then the composers deal with it the best way they can. But when you take that problem out of the equation I think it can make for a lot better uh, experience absolutely and I think that's also one of the things where we as part of the industry should get used to seeing both as like a tool to be used at different times I recently finished scoring a short film that is supposed to take place in the 80s and it's about a radio host so they really wanted to you know make it sound like it was 
stuff that had been written in the 80s to make it more immersive in that feeling. And so there I wanted, we made a playlist of the director's favorite 80s bands for me to try and figure out what kind of sound he wanted. And then we, I got together with a songwriter and we wrote like an 80s style pop song to go with it. So it's one of those things where I feel like, you know, having a temp score or like reference music can be a really important tool depending on the thing. But it's like you said, there's always that fear issue that can arise from getting super attached to that template. Yeah, I mean, I never want to shoot in the dark. Like we we had a benchmark of like our right, 90s industrial, you know, Nine Inch Nails, How to Destroy Angels. Like we know that we want that sound, um, but how do we make that sound translate into score? That was the, the biggest thing we had to get through. Absolutely. And something I think is really cool that's come out of TikTok is people have begun to realize how much just like the general public is actually really into like analyzing the music. Oh yeah. That goes with movies, which I think is making directors realize, oh, like people really care about this more than we thought. I made a TikTok. There was um there was this guy on TikTok who's great. I think he goes by Straw Hat Goofy. He's a big like yeah. um oh, yeah. So uh you know like maybe like a year ago or something. I make TikToks on occasion. I think they're fun. Not the best at it, but like it's really interesting how people gravitate towards certain information or how you, we think because it's some, something that we work in that everyone knows this stuff and they don't. And it's fun for the general public to get a peek behind how certain things are made that they didn't even think about that someone is doing that behind the scenes. Um, he did a video on Wonder Woman 1982. I think that's the second Wonder Woman and was saying, did Hans Zimmer, you know, steal this music, blah, blah, blah. And like, it was what ended up being is that they had licensed a piece of music in Wonder Woman that was clearly used as temp score. Um, it was, I forget what it was from. It was an older piece of music. And my guess and what I made TikTok on is that no, obviously this is a licensed piece of music in the score, but my guess is that it was temp score. I'm sure Hans and team did you know, several versions of it. And the creatives just decided, well, no, we like, we want to use this piece of music and just going through a TikTok and describing how temp score functions to the public, like people had no clue. And it's so interesting because like you and I and Mm -hmm. our peers, we understand how that stuff functions, but you know, Sally going to the movies doesn't know how the sauce is made. She just knows that the sauce tastes good. So it's, it's cool. And I love TikTok for that reason. You see so many creators in so many different fields, whether it's visual effects or music or any kind of, you know, art form, uh, people are getting these little bite-sized bits of information that they can easily digest and learn more about the things they're interested in. Absolutely. That is how I've like kind of gotten into animal science. Like it's not something I would want to be in a profession about, but when people start talking about, wow, wow, actually moose, are kind of assholes I'm like oh wow <laughs> the tiktok is fascinating i am addicted to that app but i really do think i mean a lot of people say it's it's poisoning our world and whatever i'm like no it's it's i've learned how to cook things from there I, I think it's great i think it's connecting people in an interesting new way especially after the you know a couple of years we've had i think what people are missing is a lot of human connection and if an app can help with that then i think that's great all right. Well, getting off the TikTok track, because 
this is not released on TikTok. We released it on Spotify and YouTube. Uh, what, so I, this is something I love asking people with um, any, you know, series that involves action scenes. What do you think are the challenges of composing for action? And how do you go about, you know, making it through those challenges, especially in, you know, a series like this, where the nitty and grittiness of the action is a huge part of just the plot and the personality of the characters. With this show in particular, um, once we found the sound of what those scenes were going to be, you know, uh, originally there's, there's an amazing uh, fight in a bathhouse in episode four. It's like one of my favorite parts of the show. It's one of the things I scored the earliest on and like props to the stunt team and our lead actress who did a lot of her own stunts. It's some of the best fight sequences I've seen on television, period. And I'm not just saying that. Like, I'm a diehard stunts person. I have friends who are stunt performers. I think it's really a sick part of our industry. Um, Especially coming out of Cirque du Soleil. (laughs) Yeah, I have a big appreciation for that stuff. Um, But when I saw that scene and and I did a first version of it, it was more organic. It was, like, very, like, um, you know... Uh, standard action, Tycho, whatever kind of a thing and mixed with synths. And it wasn't bad, but, you know, Adam just sent me an email and he was like, you know, this is, this is great, but like, what, how can we make ourselves different? Like we both love, you know, electronic music. Like what, how do we make that the thing? And I was like, well, screw it. Let's just go like full speed into that lane. Um, and you'll hear in, I'd say, 99% of the action, it's all like four on the floor kicks, um, heavy analog synths. Everything is like going full speed pulses stuff. It's not like drums and strings and ostinatos. It is not standard action score at all. And that made it fun um, because I think sometimes action can be very formulaic, whereas this, we made it not formulaic, which I loved. Um, But the other thing is you have to be conscious of when you're scoring stuff like this uh, is sound design and sound effects. And you have to stay out of the way of that stuff or play nicely with it. And a lot of the times you're not getting the final sounds as you're scoring. There is a a scene, I think it's like episode five or six, um, where Jenny is escaping from someone and it goes into slow-mo and there's like full machine guns firing at her. And I got really lucky, uh, Ruth, our incredible sound designer, she, at, toward the end of the project, we actually looked, worked really closely together to find a good balance between uh, the special effects sounds and the music, which is super rare. It's, I've never had that happen where like, you're, and it should happen more where you are working as a team with sound so that you're not competing or conflicting with each other. Um, on this project, we got really lucky that we got to work together as opposed to kind of like come separately and try to like figure it out versus a lot of action. You are fighting against helicopter sounds, guns, explosions, and you have to somehow fit music in there too, without it sounding like a jumbled mess. Absolutely. I think you hit all the nails on that. All nine inches of them. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that is all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining me. This was such a great interview. Honestly, the reason I schedule these for an hour is because sometimes people take a long time to actually get around to answering questions, but you <laughs> answered all of them just so great. And oh, 
as I said, I love this series. Uh, my friends and I have already been saying that we'd love to see something else in this universe. Fingers um, crossed. Fingers yeah. crossed. <laughs> At Netflix on Twitter, tell them we want more. Yeah, tell your friends, have them make TikToks about it, post it on, yeah, Twitter, tag it. I mean, you know, this show, um, it, we did a lot with very little. And I'm really, really proud of the team and being part of it. And I think I just, you know, we were delayed like a year in production because of COVID. So the fact that our show even came back and exists is just a feat in itself. And everyone stayed so optimistic. So it's like our little baby and I want it to do well. <laughs> well, my last question for you, and this is a, something I'm trying to integrate more into season three of this podcast. Do you have any questions you want to ask me after me asking you questions for half an hour? Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say, uh, you know, hmm, I don't know. Um, well, what is something that you as a student currently think that people like me could be doing more to help um, you guys when you come out into our industry? Once you get out into the world, what's something that you would find helpful, whether it be, you know, information we're putting out there, tools, talks, what's something that you want to see more of from us that would help in your journey? Something that I would personally like to see more of is just engagement with schools of music while we're still in school so that we have some kind of foundational network for when we get out or people it's like oh we really liked when you uh came to our convocation or did a master class with us to you know get us out there I really love when I hear about composers that you know like cold email schools of music and they're like hey check out this score I wrote for band or score I wrote for orchestra it'd be really cool to see more of you know hey, I heard you guys are teaching a film music class. Uh, here's a little excerpt of my score if you guys want to check it out. Or like, you know, cold, um, we'll get cold emails from, you know, artists or chamber music groups that are like, hey, you want us to like come give a talk at your school? I think seeing that more from people in the film industry too would be oh. really helpful so we can get more exposure to that industry. Because as you know, from music school, most of, you know, the master classes and stuff we get are, classically centered even if it's not a strictly classical school oh yeah yeah that was something even at Berkeley which is not a traditionally classical school and and has connections and people yeah it was you know you want to talk to real world what what's going on so I completely that's a really good point all right well thank you so much again Tori for joining me today hopefully we'll get to have you on again to talk about either another project or know something else in this universe which would be really cool like like i said listeners go tag twitter tiktok tell and Netflix I, we want more like students i'm like i am reachable via social media i love talking to students especially dms questions within reason but i i really do like to try and help so i'm always reachable find me on instagram twitter i'm there appreciate that so much all right i'll talk to you again in the future bye tori thank you bye.